Outside the Box. Hi and welcome to June's Outside the Box. We are a week later than we would ordinarily be, but you know, some people have had major life events. By some people, I mean Mickey. Hello! So it means we've got a lot to cram in, so we try and keep everything quite tight. I thought the best place maybe for us to start was something that we've all watched and we can all talk about, which is Mayor of Easttown. Now, that has finished and we have all finished watching it. Jen and I were slightly ahead last time and Mickey hadn't seen all of it, but we kind of encouraged her to go back and watch more. So was that the right decision, Mickey? Yes. Whilst I am not sure about a series that takes four episodes to warm up out of its seven, I am very, very glad that I did go back and watch it because I ended up thinking it was very good. Not perfect by any means, but very good indeed and I really warmed to Kate Winslet's character Mare in that fourth episode and I tell you what it's fucking ballsy isn't it to have three episodes where you don't like the the main character at all but she becomes something quite special I think obviously in the Catherine Carwood mode of Happy Valley but I really really enjoyed it and it managed to surprise me a little bit at the end too. Ah, see, it didn't surprise me at the end. In fact, I predicted that the only reason Julianne Nicholson was in that role was because it was going to be down to the fact it was one of Julianne Nicholson's family that did it. And the very yeah. final twist is what surprised me. Yeah. And also, something that happens in episode five properly made me go, oh, that yeah, that was good. I don't know if we're doing spoilers. I guess you did just spoil the end, so yeah, we are. Yeah. Well, I would say that I thought that uh, when I'd watched it in its entirety that actually having a guy with girls locked in his house, that could have come out completely and it still would have been a good series, to be honest. That bit still sat quite weirdly within the context of the rest of it. I I guess it's just a really big red herring. Sorry, Jen, I spoke over you. But I guess that was just a really big red herring. But yeah, why that ran for five of the seven episodes does seem a little bit baffling. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And it was nice, I guess, to end with a kind of like, maybe her life won't be miserable forever kind of thing but I did think like what was Guy Pierce? was he a red herring as well because I suspected him for a, a number of times and he didn't really end up doing very much did he but someone told me on on the Twitter that apparently th- the role was actually a newish thing I don't know if that was correct information or not but um, apparently it, the basically the point of it was to kind of I think to give her some hope yeah, right. he's sort of Mare's, he, Mare's future at the end. He's yeah. like, I'm not yeah. going to let this go. It's such a good thing. And I yeah. don't think anyone said that to Mare potentially ever. I did I did really like the way they made it. I mean, I know like lots of TV programmes do this, but I did really like the way they made it as much about her as it was the sort of case. But I think they did it more than other crime dramas, whatever you want crime to call dramas, it. Crime dramas, yeah. I think they did it a bit more explicitly than other crime dramas do, maybe. I don't know. I read an interesting little fact. I thought it was interesting. Let's put it to the test. In the in post production, the editor asked Kate Winslet if she would like them to edit out her belly mm. and she said, No, leave my belly rolls alone. Thank you very much. I want Mare to be totally relatable. She's always been like that. I remember yes. seeing an interview she did with I think it was Oprah Winfrey. She'd done a naked scene in something, I don't know what it was. 
But she was older and she said that she felt really relieved to see that her tits went to the side when she laid down because that's what <laughs> ordinary women's tits did rather than facing forward all of the time. So, yeah, I think she has always been quite sort of keen on the uh, body. This is what my body is. Take it or leave it line. So well done, Kate Winslet, for that. Totally. From tits and women on to men and prison. Let's talk about time which is a three-part prison drama by Jimmy McGovern. So prepare yourself for the grim, because that's what happens, starring Sean Bean and Stephen Graham. So, like, hooray for that. (laughs) I mean, that's about as exciting as it gets. And also Hannah Walters, who plays Stephen Graham's wife in it, and is, fun fact for people who don't know Stephen Graham's actual wife, And I thought a really nice role, really low-key, really quiet, really well done by Siobhan Finneran as the in-prison nun who develops a quite close friendship with Sean Bean's character. I mean, slight spoiler alert, because I can't really remember now at what point this is introduced to the story, but Sean Bean is a teacher, an alcoholic, who has killed a cyclist while drink-driving and is in prison for four years. And Stephen Graham is a prison officer, a really well thought of one, and seems to come across as the nice guy in it, whose son is in a separate prison, and that is causing him and his wife concerns, but also for a good reason concerns, there are threats to his safety. So it's about the two of those. I mean, I read a piece that Owen Jones wrote, Uh. Yikes, there's my face, about how McGovern's saying that prison doesn't work. And I do think that he is saying that prison doesn't work, but I actually think that's a really reductive way to look at Jimmy McGovern stuff because it's always about something else, isn't it? It's always about the human condition when Jimmy McGovern writes. And I think what he's writing about here is what I could probably sum up as, I would say, the weight of responsibility, the responsibility for what you have done and accepting the responsibility for that, but also your responsibilities and the responsibility that Stephen Graham feels like he has to his son and how that weighs on him. So I would say, yeah, I think it's fantastic. It's bleak, obviously. I didn't think it was as bleak as a lot of prison dramas, like, say, for example, Buried, the Channel 4 drama that had Lenny James in, which was something without hope, whereas I think this is something with hope, even if that hope is just that you maybe learn to forgive yourself for the things that you've done. And only hope that the other people around you start to forgive you too. So I don't know what you thought, Jen. Yeah, I would agree with that. It is really quite bleak, I think. But I would agree that the ending is kind of like weirdly uplifting. Yeah. Obviously, there's there's two sort of main threads running through it. Two different stories, essentially, and... Yeah, so it's not it's not all good. Uh, some of it is is still pretty bleak, but I thought ultimately it was quite uplifting because you're right, there is absolutely hope there. I thought Sean Bean was just like honestly, I could cry thinking about it. I thought that he was you just I just wanted to cuddle him throughout. Like mm. I just felt very sad and weirdly maternal for him, but. It, I don't think that's weird, Jen, because because he's a teacher, mm. he goes into that prison and in a lot of ways treats it like a school, becomes mentor-ish to certain other characters and he's quite paternal himself. Yeah. So 
if you came away with a maternal feeling about him, maybe that's not so surprising. I suppose also it's only just occurred to me that there is like a massive parallel there between prisons and schools, right? Yeah. And like what goes on and the hierarchy and the pecking order and all of that yeah. stuff, you know, like the school bullies, etc., etc. And I do think, you know, he did make the point very well as well that the penal system in England and Wales does not work particularly mm. well. I thought it was really, really good. I saw, I think it was the last thing he did for BBC, Jimmy McGovern, that is. Maybe it wasn't the last, but one of the last also had Sean Bean in it as a priest. A priest, yeah, with Paula Malcolmson, yeah. I didn't really take to that as much, and, and I believe it was not as successful as, as some of his other stuff. But I thought this was, I thought it was really brilliant. I, yeah, it, it's, it's a hard watch, but it's a good watch. Yeah, agreed. Well, I mean, that was—I would say—that's true of a lot of Jimmy McGovern stuff. But yes, you're spot on. I—I th- I thought it asked some quite hard questions, because Bean's a nice guy in in it, and you want to like him. But he's done a terrible, terrible, terrible thing yeah. that has affected somebody's life, and has affected it, a lot of people's lives. Yeah, and thought, it, yeah. it doesn't—it doesn't shy away from that. I mean, there's other great performances in there. Sue Johnson as his mum, even though there's not much of an age gap between Sue Johnson and uh, Sean Bean. But to be honest, if that means that you're going to get both of those two, then I'm happy to suspend disbelief for a moment there. Let's move on to something else that's quite bleak. I know neither of you two have seen, but I would suggest at some point that you do watch it. In fact, I think everybody should because it's really, really good, which is the Underground Railroad, which is on Amazon Prime. And the big name here is Barry Jenkins. who is like the showrunner and has directed them. Barry Jenkins obviously won an Oscar for Moonlight and also made If Bill Street Could Talk. It's based on the novel by Colson Whitehead, which obviously the Underground Railroad takes its name from the network of freed slaves and abolitionists who helped slaves flee the South before the Civil War, but it is actually a work of magical realism that imagines that the Underground Railroad is literally an Underground Railroad and nobody knows where it's come from. Really, really good. It's really bleak, really fucking bleak in parts, particularly at the start when our main character, who is called Cora, and she is played by the South African actress Thuso Mabidu. She runs from a Georgia plantation and finds herself in the care of the Underground Railroad. She is being hotly pursued by Joel Edgerton, who is a slave catcher. I don't think I've ever seen Joel Edgerton do a bad performance. So, yeah, great to see him in it. He has a psychic who is an 11-year-old free slave played by Chase W. Dillon, who is so unbelievably self-assured in his performance at 11 years old that I actually did have to Google that he was actually a child <laughs> as opposed to either just someone very small or someone that they've magically CGI'd out or something because he is so rock solid at 11 years old. God knows what he's going to be like as a grown-up. Lots of other character actors scattered through it because everybody wants to work with Barry Jenkins, obviously. Peter Mullen, Dave, Damon Harriman, Will Poulter. They all tend to turn up in just one episode because it's a novel, so it's a, it's it's episodic in a way that te- most television programmes aren't. Someone's in it, you never see him again, but you get a great performance for 50 minutes out of them. Jenkins is quite a lot like, or takes quite a lot of influence, I think, from Terence Malick 
and the early flight of Cora and one of the slaves she runs with, he does so well because it's not, there's no peril there. You know she's not going to get caught because this is what the book's about, is about her flight. But he manages to create this extraordinary sort of tension by staying really close on them, but then also being really far away from them at other points. So you see how far they have to run and how stressful it is for them really close up. And it feels very Badlands, obviously something to applaud. Absolute violent, brutal violence, but it's juxtaposed with, well, this is what magical realism does, doesn't it? It juxtaposes it with this fantasy that goes on at the same time. Yeah, I would advise that anyone watches it. It's it's good. It was on my list, so uh, it's it remains on my list. That's exciting. One last thing I'm going to talk about in this section. The Beast Must Die, which you probably seen really really heavily plugged on yep. twitter is brit boxes I th- i'm pretty sure it's their first original drama mm. which is why mm. they've come out so heavily promoting it brit box i don't really understand the principle of brit box too much if i'm going to be totally honest because mm. it's the way to watch itv and bbc stuff without adverts well you don't get adverts in the bbc stuff anyway it's a lot of really good dramas by the bbc that are squirreled away in an area that they can make some money out of them i think rather than putting them up for free on the iplayer so if you ever find yourself wondering why isn't that on the iplayer it's because it's on britbox i would never personally get involved with that i don't think however you can get a free month and if you're going to take your free month I would suggest that, like me, you take it now because actually The Beast Must Die is really, really good. Were you drawn in by Jared Harris by any chance? I was drawn in by Jared (laughs) Harris, I have to say. God, I love him. And rightly so. Yeah. If you think it's a terrible name, and it is a terrible name, it's actually based on a novel that was written in the 30s by Cecil Day-Lewis, but under a pen name. And so, therefore, it's got a touch of the old-style murder mystery about it it's got a sort of christie-esque you know if it sounds ridiculous that the plot is that this woman manages to ingratiate herself into this rich family by pretending she's an author that maybe does sound a bit ridiculous in 2021 it didn't in 1930 right but but yeah actually it does work it does really work that woman is played by kush jumbo her kid has been killed in a Hit and run. It's set on the Isle of Wight and she's decided that the police have let the real culprit go because the Isle of Wight is a really closed, sort of close-knit community. So she decides to try and find out who did it herself. She has settled on Jared Harris as the person who has done it and has ingratiated herself into his family. I actually really like it. Jared Harris, you can't go wrong. Cush Jumbo, as we know from watching Dead Water Fell, is terrific as a woman on the edge, and she does a great job on this. Loads of other people knocking around in this, doing good jobs, including, and apologies because I didn't write it down, but the copper, again, feels like it should be a real cliche. Uh, The young policeman who now works there and has taken over the case it's come off the back of his partner being killed in quite unpleasant circumstances. All of which feels like a cliche, but I have to say, it's that role in particular really stands out because he's playing it not as this moody, broody, I am a copper. He's playing it as I would imagine one of my friends would be if that had happened to them at work. It feels really normal. So, yeah, I would recommend if you're going to get your free brick box membership, now would be the time. Also on there... And it's one, like I was saying about BBC dramas, that should be on more often, but they're not. 
or should be more accessible, but they're not. Also on there is To Walk Invisible, which is Sally Wainwright's film about the Bronte sisters, which is really cracking and contains another absolutely barnstorming performance by Adam Negatis, who I think might turn out to be our next Sean Bean. Well... That's a bold. It's a big chat. Big chat from Dunleavy. Yeah. Well, watch it. Watch it and tell me what you think. I take it he's Bramwell. He is Bramwell. Yeah. Shall we have a little break? Uh, And by that, I mean just me turn on Wi Fi and then we'll come back in a moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Welcome back. Just FYI, if this, when I come to edit it, feels really disjointed, it's because it is, because my Wi Fi keeps disappearing. So fingers crossed. After doing some heavy drama, let's do some comedy. And I thought I might start with Inside Number 9. All six episodes have now been on. For those of you who don't know, Inside Number 9, Steve Pemberton and Ruth Shearsmith anthology series. Worth mentioning that this is slightly different than the previous series in that this, rather than being what they wrote for Series 6, is an amalgamation of what they wrote for Series 6 and Series 7. In that they wrote Series 6, they started to film it, they went into lockdown, they decided to write Series 7, and then when they came back for filming, they said, have you got any (laughs) two-handers? Because that would be really helpful for COVID restrictions. So some of the things they'd written for Series 7 were shifted into Series 6. So there are a couple more two- and three-handers in this than there would be in an ordinary series, and I assume that all of the really big casts are now the ones that are going to be (laughs) into Series 7. As ever, some of them are funnier than others, some of them are meant to be funnier than others, some of them are scarier than others, some of them are more dramatic than others. There's always one that's slightly experimental, and in this episode it's the first one, which is called Wuthering Heist, which is a, a mashup of Comedia Delate and Reservoir Dogs, essentially, and has a really huge cast of really great people, yes. all of whom are hidden under masks right? <laughs> for the most part. How so very contemporary. Actually, yeah, you can't actually tell exactly that. Uh, Patterson Joe's actually, Gemma Whelan doesn't have a mask on. She's the only one without a mask. Actually, genuinely cracking performance by Kevin Bishop, who is the person hiding under that mask as Arlo. I hated that on the first watch and I watched it again and I fucking loved it. Oh, it's I so thought it was weird. amazing. It's so like, weird. I loved it on the second uh, watch. And also, what an opener for Inside Number 9, which I adore. And it's almost always in danger of being hoisted by its own petard, right? Because yeah. it's so creative. But where else could you see that you would not see that anywhere else apart from inside number nine and i thought yep they have just come back and gone anyone who thinks we've run out of ideas fuck you <laughs> i loved it and because it is done like comedia de latte Gemma whelan openly addresses the audience continuously and it's really funny and also they use the lamest shittest jokes they can find and they really make me laugh yeah i thought it was excellent the other two that really stood out to me are the one with derek jacoby which, again, is nicely done in that if you know who Daniel Webster is, then you're yeah. going to know where this story's going. But even though I did and I did, it, it, it still was just incredible. Also, fun fact, Derek Jacoby's second appearance mm. in Inside Number 9, because he's also the voiceover from one of my favourite episodes, which is called The Devil of Christmas. I think it's yeah. Series 3. Yeah. There's really light on jokes there, but the jokes that they do have are absolutely perfect angry reese smith is the best reese smith camp as fuck reese smith is the second best reese smith 
And at the point where he says, now, I don't suppose you've seen Frozen. <laughs> that really made me laugh and laugh and laugh. I also really like the proms episode. And I, do you know what? I learned stuff from the proms episode. Mm. I actually learned stuff. So it was an educational experience. And that is based on the first line of Jerusalem. Well, this is what I'm saying it's based on. And did his feet in ancient times. The other three, I could have taken or left a bit more. But three out of six is, I think, a pretty good hit rate for outside number nine. Make it. In, inside number nine. Inside outside. number nine, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, that final episode last night of The Proms is is so overtly political as well. Mm. And it just sort of shows how they cover so much stuff, but are fairly apolitical. And it's it's very fair and it's excellent. It's all about Brexit, Britain, Jen, and maybe the second coming of Christ. Who knows? I love, and that's it, I love how big their scope is. They are not scared of pulling anything from anywhere and it just continues to be an absolute joy. I like to sort of binge watch stuff. That's how I watch most of my television. But I have loved having Inside Number 9 as a regular. That's what I'm going to watch. I'm going to sit down and watch that on a Monday night. And apart from moving, that is something that I have done every single week. So I caught up a couple of nights ago with the last one. And it's just really, really good there's not a duff one in there and even if there's one that you're like oh okay that one wasn't as much for me so that one for me in this series was the one where steve pemberton's in a hotel room i Mm. forget the name sorry i should have written it down but yeah and i saw loads of people saying that was the best one yeah it was in their top five and so then it gave me the joyous excuse to go back and just remember all of the brilliant inside number nines that I think are so much better but there's always something to love and I'm already excited for series seven they're brilliant they're just I think they're genius they are are. I had an interesting conversation at your very wedding Mickey about the fact that their prime aim is not necessarily funny anymore Mm. and how that is good in a lot of ways because they're very clever and all of those things but in some ways it's disappointing because not many people make funny like they make funny and that's the sort of funny I really like so I do miss the absolute like massive belly laughs that came with something like Psychoville which to me is the peak of what they've done I know people think it's the League of Gentlemen and I fucking love the League of Gentlemen don't get me wrong but there were misses in the League of Gentlemen there were some characters that really got on my tits like Pops yeah, oh my God, he was the absolute worst. Paid, yeah. paid. Whereas Psychoville, I think, is just like funny. Everyone is funny. I think that's a really interesting point just to add, though, because when you introed this and you described it as a comedy, I kind of pulled a little face because I don't know that it is anymore. I don't know that it is a comedy anthology yeah. anymore. I think it's just an anthology series in the same way that Tales of the Unexpected or Play for Today was an anthology series. Yeah. and. That's great, I guess, because it expands what they can do. Not that yeah. they needed any encouragement of. <laughs> I always like to point out when I think an actor has done an excellent version of himself. Obviously, there is a hierarchy. Kogan does best himself. David Tennant, really high, but like himself. But big, big round of applause to Adrian Dunbar yes. for doing the most incredible himself I think I've seen <laughs> in, in quite a while. Yeah. Okay, now sticking with the funny, although. Like we say, and I genuinely think, given that Inside Number 9 came back and Partridge came back and Motherland all came back within about a fortnight of each other, if you were going to ask me which one was the most resolutely funny, I would have to say it's Motherland. So, 
Jen, I have won you over to the, I think yes. I've won you over to the Motherland campaign. Okay, so we're up to series three. This series only had five episodes, I guess, because it was paired with the Christmas episode and it was supposed to start its run then with the oh. Christmas episode being episode one. I'm guessing this is why it happened. But because of things like social distancing and, you know, all of all of what's been going on in the last year, they ended up that ended up getting stranded on its own at Christmas. And the other five episodes came six months later. The only downside of it being five episodes is I would have quite liked another one because I thought it was cracking. And we're going to do this one with spoilers. I think it achieved three like things really, really well, this series. The first thing that it achieved was getting a cancer plot in and doing it well, but doing it in a way that showed that, you know, when you got cancer, you still got to get on with the rest of your life, which I've witnessed quite a lot recently. It made Kevin grow a pair of bollocks, which I think was perhaps the most astounding achievement. And it made Amanda quite sympathetic, this series. So all of those things... Well, well done. But adding on top of that, it's just so fucking funny. There's so many brilliant lines. I mean, the Diane Morgan line about, about which I think I quoted last time, about keeping uh, work and pleasure separate. And by work, she means the PTA. And by pleasure, she means penises. <laughs> that was so funny. But also there's a terrific line when they're all having a fight at the side of the road. And Meg shouts, you're screaming at each other in a ditch. It's like being on Twitter. <laughs> Jen, tell me about Motherland. Okay, so I've only just started... I mean, I've watched all of it now. I watched it all in a week. But I started um, <laughs> started from episode one of the first series, yeah. which I think must have been a pilot. And I have to say, like, the first episode, I just absolutely pissed myself. Just, just like, very well observed. Like, the bit where she's trying to blow up the long balloons. We've all tried yeah. to blow up a long <laughs> balloon, right? And it's fucking hard work and just like just that I was I was weeping as I watched it and then Animal Man who is I believe based on like a real person who like does the rounds of children's birthday parties in London so I think I'd avoided it for a long time and I was chatting to another friend of mine over the weekend he said the same thing that they'd avoid it for a long time because they thought it wasn't quote unquote for them because when it started, I was not a parent. And obviously now, like, I do have Lyra, but she's only little. Like, that's my future kind of thing yeah. at the school gates <laughs> or whatever, which is terrifying. You know, it is objectively funny. So I think any kind of notion that it might not be for you, I, I think it is objectively funny. I really enjoyed it. I saw some stuff written about the cancer storyline, which was more critical of it. Didn't think that it did it justice. But I kind of... How do you do it justice in five episodes? Well, yeah, exactly. And I think, like, if if the answer to that is, well, you shouldn't try if you're not going to do it justice, then, you know, who's going to do anything? I I don't know. I I kind of thought, as full disclosure, I do not know anyone. No one close to me has had breast cancer. Uh, I've been very lucky thus far in my life. So I do not know the full realities of it. Obviously, Hannah, I know that you do. But just, I, I would guess that for a lot of people watching that actually it's quite hopeful and quite needed yeah and the point is it's not it's not realistic view of what it's like to have cancer yeah. but that's not what this television no. series is about it's more a an interesting perception of how a group dynamics change yeah. when one of those people has cancer which is what i think this has looked at it's more about what it's like to know someone who's got cancer than what it's like to have cancer. Because Meg is only one character. Yeah. And obviously, like I say, everybody else's life goes on with it. So, yes, we don't see her throwing up with the chemo and all of that stuff, which is grim. 
But what we do see is her little flashes. When somebody puts a public front up mm. and then the few occasions that that public front comes down, like when she's on the doorstep with, uh, with Anna Maxwell Martin saying, I don't know whether it's going to be my last Mother's Day. And the fact that they compress that into such a small moment, I think actually does do it justice because people aren't always about, you know, let's invite everybody in. I also thought the moment where Anna Maxwell Martin has a little breakdown on the phone to her builder, tells him she loves him, was beautifully done. Really, really beautifully done. I thought that was a really nice little um, storyline. Because it's, you know, like she's not the most likeable of characters, is she? And and, no. and the, the, the reality is that her life is hard and she's not getting the support that she needs. And that's something that I can definitely relate to. And, uh, you know, I think that it, it was really interesting to see the way that kind of manifested and, and I think also helped you to see her in a more sympathetic light because I yeah. don't think she is always the most sympathetic yeah. character, although she is piss funny. Yeah, but also her mother is living with her and I think the role of motherhood is really pertinent in her life at the moment and then there's that lovely scene where she tells her mum that she doesn't think her daughter loves her anymore and she was like, she used to think I was great. If I used to fart, she used to laugh. And then her mum says, oh, you know, but they all grow up. And then she stands up and her mum farts when she stands up. And Anna Maxwell Martin just goes, oh! <laughs> and it's And it's brutal. Like, it is it is brutal, but I think it's very realistic, isn't it? You know, if, you're, if one of your parents suddenly had to come and live with you and you had to, you know, yeah. change your whole life to, to look after them, essentially. Like, you know, I think that would come with a, a degree of, of stress and also, frankly, irritation. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's a bad thing to say that. Absolutely. The funniest line motherhood's ever had is the one where when her mum has a stroke and she's in the back of the ambulance and she says to her, oh, I, you can come and live with me. Please don't die. We'll look after you. And then you see it, her, it starts to dawn on her what the realisation of what what that would mean. And then she turns around and says to the ambulance guy, do you, do you think she hurt me? Because I'm going to have to run this past my husband. <laughs> and I think that that is what motherhood is, is good at doing. The myth of what we want to be and what we actually are yeah. in our day-to-day lives and sort of comparing the two. I also think that the stuff of her mum throughout it is just like, is just fucking hilarious. They never actually explain it, but I think what you're, what it is implied is that her mum, Anna Maxwell Martin's mum, used to sort of do a lot of the childcare and basically got pissed off with being taken yeah. advantage of and has kind of stepped back a bit. And the whole thing is just like this constant war between her, like, not between, it's her at her mum rather than between them. And she's so pissed off that her mum won't do more to help her. And just the way that it comes across is just... It's so, like, hilariously done. Like, when her mum pops up in these random places and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. It's just brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. Excellent stuff. So, resounding hooray for Motherland. I've got one last thing to talk about, which is Fargo Season 4, which is now playing week by week on Channel 4, or you can watch it all in one go on all... Four? Is that what it's called? Yes. Yes. Four. Yeah. Yeah. I was just because Sarah calls it all fours. That's why I wanted to make sure I said the right thing. <laughs> Eleven episodes. That's an odd number. Who knows where that came from? Again, anthology series. There is some tangential link between all of them, but if you haven't watched it, it doesn't matter. You could still sit down and watch series four if you wanted to. Set in Kansas, Missouri. 
in the 1950s. Chris Rock plays the head of what we're going to call the Black Mafia. He comes up against the Mafia Mafia, which is led, for the most part, by Jason Schwartzman. The story is narrated by a teenage uh, black character who is played by Emery Crutchfield. Um, She's called Pearl. She's great as the narrator. I wasn't quite sure what to make of this because I think this actually has the best cast, from my point of view, of any of the Fargos. However, there's also some other things that I thought, oh, I'm not quite sure about. Let's start with Chris Rock, who has a cadence that I only ever associate with comedy and therefore I felt I may struggle with that as a cadence in drama. He does manage to rein that in a bit. Still, sometimes he goes into that funny little sing-song voice that he does. But even so, actually, I thought Chris Rock was good. He's not the best thing in it, but I thought he was solid. So well done to him. Emery Crutchfield, really good. It's got Timothy Oliphant as a lawman in a hat. Who doesn't want that? Loving in a hat. Who doesn't want to see that? Jack Houston, who only has two speeds, which are total hit or total shit. He's brilliant. Best thing I've seen him in since Borborg Empire. Jason Schwartzman, I like a lot. and I But I was a bit concerned that he is quite typecast and he manages to break out of that typecast and not be the character that we thought he would be, which is good. It has Ben Whishaw in it, who, as you know, I have an irrational hatred of. Apart from when he's Paddington. Aww. Apart from when, well, I can't see him when he's Paddington. But do you know what? It's the <laughs> most low-key, it's the best performance I've seen, or certainly the least Ben Whishaw performance I've seen from Ben Whishaw. So well done to him on that. I'm sure he doesn't listen because he knows I don't like him. Maybe he does listen and he's tailored his performance accordingly. Maybe. But absolutely 100% runaway star of the show is Jessie Buckley, who is fucking phenomenal in this. She plays a nurse who is from Minnesota, because obviously there's always a link to Minnesota because of Fargo. It would be easy to say that the earnestness and the accent make her appear to be quite like Frances McDormand in Fargo. However, she is an absolute raging psychopath in this. And she is just brilliant. I actually commented the other day on how she walks in this. It's I can't even explain it. It's worth Fargo season four is worth watching for how Jessie Buckley manages to do this odd toddle walk and do it at speed when she's running. Honestly, she's incredible. She's really it's really interesting because Jessie Buckley lost a talent contest when she was eighteen and and disappeared for a bit and came back and has had hit after hit after hit. And I think perhaps Jesse Buckley is one of those people that you should use as an example of. Maybe sometimes it's good not to win. Maybe something isn't the right time for you. I'm sure that people, when Jodie Prenger won that show and she didn't, that people said to her, your time will come. And she probably didn't believe it. But fuck me, it's come now. There is a scene in this, again, which is so fucking weird and wonderful, in which he wanks off Jason Schwartzman while singing the battle hymn of the Republic. Which, do you know what that is? No, but... It's, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of oh, the right, Lord. Yeah. Right, and it is the weirdest thing you will see on telly this year until Succession Season 3 arrives. I would imagine there's going to be some crazy shit in that too. Uh, yeah, it's she's brilliant. So I would say Fargo Season 4, less than the sum of its parts, but those parts are really enjoyable to watch. Sounds good. Mm. 
Jen, I know you've watched something. I have watched something. I've watched something else, which is a documentary on the BBC. It's called Managing England, The Impossible Job. Very topical as we are in the midst of Euro fever, as you all know. It's exactly what it says in the tin. It's about looking at England managers over the years and and how that's gone for them. Uh, Spoiler alert. (laughs) It's not a spoiler because you all know. uh, Generally doesn't end that well. Even for Sir Alf Ramsey. I'll come back to that in a second. Obviously, it's a documentary on the BBC. You'd sort of expect this. They have incredible access. They've got like Gareth Southgate, Fabio Capello, Sven Joran Eriksson, Sam Allardyce, Roy Hodgson. So they've got a bunch of pre, you know, former England managers and the current England manager who we all heart love. Um, yeah, heart eyes. Chatting about their experiences of of playing for England as well as as managing England in some cases, and having spent. A fair bit of time researching sort of fandom recently for a project I'm working on, which I still can't fucking talk about properly, which is annoying. But anyway, I found it really, really interesting and it really kind of brought home to me how ridiculously fickle football is and how unreasonable fans are. And Alf Ramsey is is the brilliant example of that and, and, you know, how he was treated as the only England manager to actually bloody win anything basically ever yeah I, I just I, I do not know why you would want to be England manager but I'm very glad that Gareth Southgate is having a crack at it there's some interesting stuff in there about like the Glenn Hoddle years obviously we all remember what happened to him and the things that he was quoted as as having said in the press and the explanation that he then went on to give which I'd completely forgotten about is it's not a good one guys just <laughs> just FYI <laughs> But the main thing, the main thing that I wanted to say about it, although I did find it interesting, there is not one single woman speaking in it, apart from one clip of, of like, archive footage of Gabby Logan interviewing someone. That is it. They do not speak to one woman in it. They have various people. I mean, obviously, football is, you know, they're talking about a men's football team. All of the managers have been men. All of the players have been men. Obviously, you would expect a lot of those people to be men, but I really feel like they could have fucking cobbled together like one woman mm. to have an opinion on the England manager role because women have opinions on this stuff. And I think like the main point I would make is that Henry Winter is not the only fucking football writer. He's just not. Like I, yeah. I just thought it was so lazy and actually really dates it, I think. I actually think that to to not have one single woman voicing her opinion, I think makes it seem like, yeah, just really dated. So yeah, a mixed review there. That's a shame because it sounds like otherwise it's really interesting. Yeah. Surely, you know, being the wife of an England manager has like moments what? to talk about. It, even even that, that is scraping the barrel, but still. Even that would be, you know, I guess interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So big fail there. Mm. agreed okay so here we are at the end uh one more thing to say briefly which is that lupin is back thank you thank you for the correct pronunciation (laughs) lupin is back we haven't got time to talk about it and mickey hasn't watched it yet so we will cover that next time also series four of the handmaid's tale i 
watched series three in lockdown and let me tell you that it took a global pandemic and not much to watch on the telly to drive me back to it so I, d- I will watch a couple of episodes but I don't know that I'll stick with it because I have some pretty strong feelings about that now also there's a good online television festival which I'd like to plug and tell you about which uh, involves me opening something else on my computer which will probably cause my wi-fi to crash again <laughs> so I'm just going to record a little bit at the end and add that on anybody else got anything that they want to say no. Okay. I'm just going to look at a picture of Timothy Oliphant in a hat and I'll see you next month. Oh, when you have closed this down so your Wi-Fi doesn't go mad again, if you could forward that to me, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, just a little bit on that festival that I promised you. It is called Series Fest. It is in its seventh year of running and for the second year, it is online for reasons that I won't need to explain to you. But the good news about it being online is since it's hosted in America, it means that you can actually still attend from the UK if you want to. Now, it runs between June the 24th and June the 30th, and there is a load of actually really great stuff on, including some stuff that links to what I've just been talking about. For example, you will see a panel that includes Kush Jumbo and Jared Harris. They are going to be talking about the beast must die there is also a panel about shush peggy there is also a panel about the underground railroad there is what is her problem (laughs) there is a special interview with the actress Anne dowd which looks great i mean you probably recognize Anne dowd from the handmaid's tale she's aunt lydia but she is also in two of my favourite television programmes ever, Freaks and Geeks and The Leftovers. So hopefully she'll be chatting about them and I will be in attendance. And by that, I mean in the audience at that event. There's lo- just loads and loads of great stuff on. So if you are interested in finding out more about that, you can go to seriesfest.com and you can find out all the necessary details there. Outside the box.